Hi, I'm Jarrett Murphy, and this is 112BK. Coming up, a longtime Brooklyn pastor and social justice activist. When we know who Jesus is, we'll have a just work. When we know who Jesus is, we'll, let, we'll have done some work. We'll do some work in the criminal justice system. When we know who Jesus is, we'll see nights are repaired. When we know who Jesus is... Reverend David Brawley is not shy about criticizing the mayor and his approach to affordable housing, especially NYCHA. And he's here to talk with us today about the beleaguered housing authority. If we couldn't trust you for the truth with lead paint, if we couldn't trust you to keep our heat on last winter, if we couldn't trust you to respond to mold moisture, mildew, and rodent infestations, we have a difficult time trusting for the ultimate reformation of public housing. Hi, welcome to the show. On November 18th, Mayor de Blasio announced the city would make repairs to 62,000 New York City Housing Authority units. About a week later, it was reported that, and unfortunately, this is not new news, some tenants are still dealing with heat and hot water outages, and they can't get answers. Winter's almost here, and it could be a long one for some NYCHA residents if things aren't straightened out soon. Some context. If it stood on its own, NYCHA housing in Brooklyn would be the second largest public housing system in the country. With 99 developments and 58,438 apartments, the borough's network is larger than those in Chicago, Philadelphia, and Baltimore combined. It's a vital affordable housing resource. Aside from the heat and hot water issues, it's also dealing with a poor management system that neglected and lied about lead inspections, widespread mold, broken doors, and rodent infestation. Funds and fixes have been announced, but tens of thousands of residents and a federal judge are awaiting word on a plan for real solutions. Here to talk about NYCHA and the plight of tenants in Brooklyn and beyond is the Reverend David Brawley, pastor of St. Paul Community Baptist Church in East New York and a member of the strategy team of East Brooklyn Congregations. Welcome, Reverend Brawley. Good to be here. You see a lot of NYCHA tenants in your work. You see a lot of NYCHA developments. How bad is it, and is it equally bad everywhere, or are there distinct pockets of good and bad in the system that you see? Well, in some areas, it's getting worse. My context, pastoring in East New York, um, I pastor in a radius that has public housing all around it. And so we're in the epicenter, I think, in some ways uh, of seeing what's happening to our people. And uh, week in and week out, I see people coming in with uh, oxygen tanks, I see all kinds of occurrences of cancer, and people are getting sicker and sicker. What do you think is driving that? You know, we hear about NYCHA. It's a very large system. For many, many years, the federal government has starved public housing of funds. We know the city and state government also have an uneven history there. Is that the explanation for the problems that we're seeing? We need leadership. We have been calling on Mayor Bill de Blasio to provide leadership when it comes down to public housing. We think, indeed, black and brown people deserve affordability in this city. This is really a, a conversation and a fight for the soul of our city. We think when you have leadership, leadership is really where it starts. And then, you know, devising a plan and relating to the people who live in public housing, all those things are necessary, but it all starts with leadership. How did you personally come to this, to this fight? Ah, so one Sunday morning, prior to preaching a sermon, uh, I just, I asked of my congregation, could I meet with members who live in public housing? Would you please stand and I'll meet with you? And I was overwhelmed at the number of people in my congregation that live in public housing. 
and then um, had a series of meetings with them and asked them what's going on. And then we brought it to the larger body of East Brooklyn congregations. And many of our pastors and uh, leaders of various and sundry institutions did the same. And then we came together and found out that there were issues that were in all of the buildings. All of our folks were going through some of the similar issues when it comes down to mold, moisture, uh, mildew, and the effects that it was having. And so at that point, it's not about me coming up with a plan. It's about advocacy and agency uh, from the folks who live in the developments. And so basically was up out of the need and seeing how it was affecting my folk. It's interesting that you and you just mentioned other men and women of the cloth, clergy mm-hmm. clergy people are playing such a big role in helping tenants to bring these complaints forward and kind of shape this dialogue. What is the role of faith, do you think, in this issue and in advocacy around it for you personally, for the your counterparts in other churches and, and other uh, bodies of worship? I'll, I'll just frame it this way. It's self-interest. If my folks get pushed out of the city, I have nobody to pastor. If my folks are hurting, then I have a social and a spiritual and a religious obligation and a moral obligation to speak up and to say something when it comes down to being a prophetic ministry. I think that it's within our self-interest to speak. Uh, Many of our uh, clergy in central Brooklyn are finding that their folks being pushed out, our folks being pushed out in East New York. And again, if we don't stand up, by the time we're, we're finished, there'll be no one left to pastor. Talk a little bit about East Brooklyn congregations. That is not a new organization that go back oh, no. many, many years. For, um, almost 40 years now. Uh, East Brooklyn congregations in the early 80s was the organization that has been known for Nehemiah housing, uh, over 5,000 homes and apartments that have been built that have literally transformed life in East Brooklyn. These are the buildings built on what were essentially uh, vacant, vacant burnt lots, burnt-out lots. lots. Absolutely. Right. Um, and this plan has been recognized in congressional record um, and has been acknowledged as one of the plans that have basically saved the soul of our city back in the 80s. And now we're espousing another plan because the crisis is just as grave now as it was then in so many ways. And so we must do something to make sure that we keep alive the last bastion and the largest bastion of affordability uh, in our city, which we believe to be public housing as well as senior housing. Uh, East Brooklyn Congregations is a part of Metro Industrial Areas Foundation, which is a Saul Alinsky-style group. And those are famous for having, I think the phrase is, uh, no permanent friends and no permanent enemies. Well, you've been reading our script. I have. I have. I read up. (laughs) What What does that mean, especially in the context of dealing with political beings who right. probably like to have permanent friends and not too many permanent enemies. Right. So it's really about the self-interest of the people. And all of our issues come up out of house meetings and conversations. So it comes very organically from the people who take problems and fine-tune them, and they literally make them into issues, that which is issuable. And when it's issuable, it's manageable, and then you can deal with it. No permanent friends, no permanent allies simply means at the end of the day, we could agree on one issue and we we can do some business there to get some things done. And perhaps we don't agree on another issue, but we're not going to stop that from allowing us to relate on some issues. And so it's about the self-interest of the people. So speaking about NYCHA, this decision by the federal judge recently to reject the settlement that the federal prosecutors in the city brought to him. Right. 
what did you think of that decision? It was about the fact that he thought there were uh, insufficient enforcement mechanisms, wasn't sure Congress and HUD were sufficiently involved. But what do you think that means for tenants, the fact that that was rejected? Well, you, 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 um, you bring up a really good point. Um, the judge, we believe, did the right thing when it comes in principle, when it comes down to saying it's not enough, it doesn't go far enough. We've heard estimates as high as $32 billion of repairs will be necessary to bring NYCHA up to speed. Some years ago, that number was $18 billion. And so it's somewhere between 18 and $32 billion. And this plan puts something like two or $2.2 billion. $2.2 right? $2. billion. The judge, rightly so, thought it didn't go far enough in terms of um, protections and enforcement and accountability. We agree with that. The unfortunate thing, Jared, though, is that there's another winter. Right. I think last year, if I'm not mistaken, 80% of the tenants experienced some form of outage when it came down to heat and hot water. And that's where the settlement came out of, right? This investigation that found these lapses, especially wow. of, of lead paint and, and things of that nature. It goes further. It goes further back. Um, we were the institution or the organization, along with our sister organization, the South Bronx Churches, Manhattan Together, who got together and put together a lawsuit on mold, moisture, and mildew. And um, that's where this really all got started. And then later on, uh, of course, lead paint became a vital issue. And coupled all that together, it really speaks to the way in which black and brown people have been ignored in this process. So the mayor has announced this plan to move 62,000 units of NYCHA into this, it's called Rental Assistance Demonstration or the PACT program. Basically, it turns NYCHA units into Section 8, involves some private management and some private investment. What do you think of that? It's about a third of the units in the whole system uh, that would be converted thus through, under that plan. Do you like that idea? It's difficult to answer that question without saying, if we couldn't trust you for the truth with lead paint, if we couldn't trust you to keep our heat on last winter, if we couldn't trust you to respond to mold moisture, mildew, and rodent infestations, we have a difficult time trusting for the ultimate reformation of public housing, especially when we're not at the table. That's interesting, because tenants being at the table was an issue, I think, that came up in, in some of the arguments about this settlement, that the tenants were not given uh, sufficient voice, and that's something apparently you, you agree with. Well, listen, we, we want to be at the table. We came to City Hall over a year ago, Columbus Day a year ago. We had 6,000 folks, leaders out there, in the rain, 6,000 people who are stating that we want resolve when it comes down to senior affordable housing. We want an opportunity to stay in the city we've built. And then secondly, we want the mayor to take leadership when it comes down to repairs. For the mayor to project NYCHA, I think it's 2.0, NYCHA 2.0, NYCHA Next Gen, if we would put more energy into the resolution of the situation instead of glossy titles, we might just get somewhere. You've referenced a couple times now a plan that EBC put forward around senior housing in Asia. Yes. Talk about that plan a little bit. Well, I'm glad you brought that up. So we're going to go public um, next Monday at Redwood Senior Living. Um, it's there in the East New York section. It's the prototype of what we believe is part of the answer when it comes down to keeping our folks in the city. And so our plan is simply to build 15,000 units of uh, senior affordable housing on NYCHA underutilized, underutilized NYCHA lots. 
not infill, not playgrounds. There are lots that we have identified that are just sitting there that could be used to keep our seniors in the city. And this would, I think, part of the argument for this plan, right, is that you have in some NYCHA developments senior citizens whose families have largely moved out mm. or are living in apartments that NYCHA considers too large for them, many, many bedrooms. Right. There's a long waiting list. This is a way to say to seniors, you don't have to leave your neighborhood. You could potentially move to a senior apartment that's literally in the development where you live. Correct. And it would solve two problems with one with one program. Is that That's part of well, the argument, yeah. right? Yeah, and so you said it almost uh, exactly what I would have said. And the only thing I would add to that is you've got folks on the wait list to get into NYCHA. You've got folks right now. You've got a homelessness issue in this city that needs to be addressed and not with motels and short-term answers, but you need to really create a long-term answer for folks who are in the homeless shelters today. And, and, and we're not really addressing the issue at its core because you're not just talking about individuals, you've got whole families in homeless shelters. And so what we believe is, is if you take seniors who are occupying a three-bedroom apartment and you move them out into what we call Redwood Senior Living, which is the prototype of what we have right now, and you give that three-bedroom apartment to a family, you have now addressed more than one issue with one solution. Would people move voluntarily? I could see some senior citizens well, let me, saying, let's no, talk about it. no, Let's thank talk you. about it. So if it's in your neighborhood, if it's brand new, so to answer your question, we have 80 units in the prototype, 5,000 people on the wait list. So it seems popular. I think they want in. <laughs> so where does this plan, the, the, the plan you're talking about, 50, uh, 15,000 units, where does that stand now? Well, so uh, the mayor, to his credit, and the city council, under the leadership of uh, Speaker Corey Johnson, put $500 million into the pipeline for the first, um, for the down payment on Redwood Senior Living, and we thought that was, was great. The problem, though, um, is that we know that money in the pipeline is not a building in the ground, and that we need leadership from the mayor to move this proposal forward. The governor, to his credit, um, set apart 1,100 units worth of low-income housing tax credits to make this affordable. And so what we believe you need is a scale, uh, affordability, and you need to move this thing expeditiously. And if you do that, um, you could begin to resolve and reverse much of the conditions that our community are going through, especially when it comes down to gentrification. NYCHA has other plans to develop uh, what it calls underused territory with 100% affordable, some market rate buildings, mm -hmm. with the idea that that will generate money for NYCHA's bottom line. What do you think of those plans? Well, let me just say that um, I just enumerate a few things. First of all, scale, efficiency. Let me throw one more in there, speed. We've seen very little coming up out of all of these plans, right? And then there's another concern for the community, gentrification. Um, the people who have endured the difficult times in our city and our communities have every right and expectation to stay in the city that they have built. And so, you know, you're talking about generating funds, and all those things can be talked about and looked at, but it's looked at right now with suspicion because if you don't have the tenants at the table and the folks that have built our city at the table, I think at this point um, people are going to have a lot of pushback. One of the most disturbing stories recently about NYCHA, and I've covered it for years, is the one about NYCHA challenging these health department findings about lead poisoning mm -hmm. at a rate that exceeded that even of private landlords. Mm -hmm. 
And you wonder, what does that say about NYCHA's ability to manage this crisis, to regain that trust? There is a movement, I don't know how big it is, to quote-unquote abolish NYCHA mm-hmm. on the idea that it's just, it's it's too big, it's too corrupt, you got to break it up, have private management. When you hear stories like the challenging of the health department uh, results, right. it, it, it I don't know if it makes that case, but it, it could argue for that case. Do you think there's a case for abolishing NYCHA and trying something else? Well, listen, we got to try. I think we do have to try something else. I don't know that that's the full answer. Certainly, we need accountability and we need leadership. Um, What we have been talking about when it comes down to new construction, especially think about um, the school construction authority for public education. You need an entity that specializes in capital building, right, that can do it efficiently, can do it with speed, perhaps it's a third-party entity, but NYCHA based on what you just said, cannot be trusted with that kind of massive reformation. Uh, it, perhaps it'll be something else, but you know, you know, you also have to look at if you privatize, then where's all the accountability going to come from, right? So how do you hold all the individual developers? And the problem we have with developers who get into our community, they get one privilege but um, oftentimes they want more than what they initially came in for. And so there's a lot of suspicion even with that as well. Mm-hmm. Mayor de Blasio came into office as a pro- progressive, mm-hmm. uh, talked about a large affordable housing plan. He did put more money in NYCHA than his predecessor did. Mm-hmm. He also has been mayor as these horrible stories have come out. Right. What is the fair assessment of how he has handled the New York City Housing Authority? Does he deserve all the blame? Does he deserve any credit? I know we're only five years into his mayoralty, and this crisis is still in front of us, but how do you evaluate his performance so far? Too little. Soon to be too late. Too late how? Okay. So a few years ago, we hear $18 billion. That's the price tag. We can fix NYCHA for $18 billion. Who's going to foot the bill? Now we hear $32 billion. The longer this goes, and we're not going to let this mayor play out the clock to the end of his term and not be held accountable, right? The longer this goes, the higher the price tag. But the price tag is not just money. Jared, the price tag are the lives of our people. This is not about Mayor de Blasio in terms of, you know, what kind of job he's doing. It's really the effect that it's having on the lives of our people. And so we're going to hold him accountable no matter what. I'm a pastor of a church, and I know other pastors. Um, And when you take over a church, any leader will tell you, when you inherit problems, you have to address them. They're now your problems. You can't blame your predecessor. You have to address what's before you. And um, we're going to hold Mayor de Blasio accountable. That raises an interesting point to get back to your role as a pastor in this this Mm -hmm. issue. You are a leader. I understand it's a bottom-up process, but people are obviously looking to you to provide leadership, and this Mm -hmm. is a crisis. Do you feel like you're under pressure? To deliver is your credibility at stake? Um, are you in a difficult position between the city and NYCHA and you and your congregants? Absolutely. I met with my folk two weeks ago, and um, an older gentleman said, Reverend, I need to tell you something. That's what he need to tell me. He said, you're under a lot of pressure. <laughs> and I like that. I appreciate that. I should be held accountable. I think it's a privilege to be a pastor I think I see this as an opportunity to lead and not a burden to do so. If if folks are going to trust and uh, show up week in and week out to our worship services, um, they should have expectation that uh, I'm going to speak and be prophetic. 
um, in my role as pastor. So, uh, yeah, there is a lot of pressure, but it's, it's, it's appropriate. Well, Reverend David Brawley, the pastor of St. Paul Community Baptist Church and a member of the strategy team for East Brooklyn Congregations, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. It's been my privilege. Now, problems with heat and hot water affect many residents in the city, not just those in NYCHA housing. At City Limits, my day-to-day home, we're doing a reporting project trying to determine how widespread utilities problems are in the city. If you've experienced your own outage of gas, electric, water, heat within the past two years, please text OUTAGE to 646-916-3930. We'll be reporting on the results at citylimits.org and here at 112BK. Let's talk about CRISPR. No, not that drawer in your fridge where the kale is starting to turn. CRISPR is the gene editing technology that's revolutionizing the genetics world, and it's today's issue on the table. If you haven't heard of CRISPR yet, the short explanation goes like this. In the past six years, scientists have figured out how to use a quirk in the immune systems of bacteria as a kind of butterfly bandage to genetically modify DNA to quickly and cheaply edit genes in plants, mice, even humans. With CRISPR, scientists can now make these edits in days rather than weeks or months. We're talking about a powerful new tool to control which genes get expressed in organisms. Think about those implications. We now have the ability to delete undesirable genetic traits and, potentially, add desirable ones with more precision than ever before. Gene editing itself isn't new. Various techniques to knock out genes have been around for years. What makes CRISPR so revolutionary is that it can target with great specificity the genes to be altered. So why talk about this today? Well, Chinese scientist He Giankui reported to AP that he's created the world's first gene-edited babies in defiance of an unofficial international moratorium on editing human embryos intended for pregnancy. And although his claims haven't been published or peer-reviewed, his assertions are troubling as the scientific community wades into the morally ambiguous territory of designer babies. It's scary to think of a world where your babies can be ordered with a la carte attributes. But so far, this new tech has also led us toward a brighter future, as with the ability to edit crops to be more nutritious, to stop genetic diseases, and create new antibiotics and antivirals. We're already growing mushrooms that don't turn brown so fast, and editing bone marrow cells in mice to treat sickle cell anemia. Okay, some of it may sound frightening, but that's what people said about vaccines way back when. Gene editing is here. We can't turn away. It's just a matter of how we employ it. We hope with more new therapies for the immune system and ways to ward off malaria and not a pull toward eugenics. That's the show for today. Tomorrow, Mackenzie Fagan will be back and talking with criminal justice reform advocates about problems with the NYPD gang database. Hope you can check it out. One Two BK is written and produced by Ross Tuttle, and also produced by Fred Brown, Shireen Bargi, Isabel Alcantara, Ariana Rosas, Emily Bogosian, and Naeem Van. It's directed by Clinton Filson Jr. and recorded by Eric Haugaseg and Antonio M. Rosario. Edited by Mira Arahim and executive produced by Aziz Aisham, Jonathan Leith, and Sasha Mathias. <laughs>